Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. And as always, we start off by saying, we took a run today, <laughs> so <laughs> take that. What is astonishing you this week, friend? In June, it will be a year that we started a partnership with a group in our city called Project Outpour. Uh, they provide... Um, showers, mobile showers for uh, those in the city experiencing homelessness. We host them on uh, Thursdays. Uh, they not only provide showers, but other um, hygiene products, um, also clothing, food that people need. And uh, again, we've been uh, partnering with them uh, for about a year. And last Thursday, we had the highest number of people um, come by, six, um, and we have two women at Dariah Church, Bev and Robin, who are really pouring themselves into this ministry and who serve with great joy and delight. And last Thursday, I watched them serve these friends of ours in our neighborhood who are homeless, and they genuinely love what they do. Are doing, and I just watch them. Uh, and, and we not only, you know, open the door so folks can go in and get the showers and uh, give them clothing and food, but after each person showers, you know, that 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 room has to be cleaned, and they clean it after each person, and they take such delight in doing it. I, as I watch them, it gave me great joy to to watch them serve. Um, as their pastor, it, it seems to me that they have reached a place in their lives where they are simply asking, how can I serve? What can I do to help? How can I give? And it's really it, just beautiful to watch. Um, I'm accustomed to celebrating and noticing how God works in me and through me as a preacher, you know, Sunday in, Sunday out. But it is deeply satisfying to watch God work in and through God's people uh, and to see them minister to the needs of people in our community in a genuine, loving, um, they, <laughs> their excitement was was just everything when, because we have a fairly long driveway to get to the parking lot uh, of the church, and so we see people as they're as they're coming up. They're either walking or riding a bicycle. Some are in cars, and so just to watch them, their their eyes get big and they get excited uh, to serve uh, these neighbors of ours. And so I'm just astonished by their joy in serving. Yeah, I think that um, I mean that's just a witness of the presence of the kingdom of God in the body of Christ and the real maturity of the congregation. There's a, um, we at Freedom School Partners, which is a summer um, camp for children that um, they have their, their leaders, sort of their counselors um, are, are, they're called servant leader interns. And like just that terminology, I, that. I, I so much. And it is, you know, the, the woman who created, um, the freedom schools model that um, is around now. Um, 
why am I like seeing uh, uh, her name, seeing her face in my brain and not being able to come up with her name because I'm old and Marion Wright Edelman, Marion Wright Edelman is a deep, deep believer in Jesus Christ and, you know, was part of the movement in the 60s and um, civil rights movement with King and the Poor People's Campaign and then founded the Children's Defense Fund out of that work. And Mm -hmm. then the Children's Defense Fund is a lobbying institution in D.C. um, working for the rights of children and freedom schools is their one programmatic element. All this is to say it's very intentionally created and the and the names, uh, the the terms that are used, like the children who are in the program, are they're not campers, they're not kids, they're scholars. The interns are not counselors; they're they're servant leader interns. And I think you know it's so it sounds like such a silly thing, and honestly, obviously, it's a mount mouthful to say, um, you know, where's your SLI? Where's your intern? Um, but I mean to to go to the trouble of saying servant leader, servant leader, servant leader is really um, generative because every time you call someone, you are literally articulating their calling, right? And reminding folks that leadership within the body of Christ looks different than leadership in the surrounding culture. And obviously Jesus talked about that directly, like, you know, outside people lord it over others and they take the best seats and it's better to be served than to serve and it's not so among you. And so to say those who are really wise and deep and mature in Christ are servants of all because Jesus was servant of all and they understand the glory in that um, and experience the joy of it, right? And so I think... um, it's just so important for us to reclaim that essential foundational piece of what it means because we have too many, not just, I mean, too many pastors, too many Christians who just think, well, because I follow Jesus, people should serve me because I am righteous and more righteous. People should serve me and I should get what I deserve. And you're just calling down, um, condemnation and there is a form of christianity that thinks that god exists to serve them Mm -hmm. right so i think like when we talk about jesus being the way what i think that means is the way that jesus lived on earth is the way that we are called to be human and live on earth and what jesus taught and did was to show that life and abundance and meaning comes through serving, not in through being served. And so, yeah, I think you can preach a million sermons on Sunday morning and people can yes and amen and hallelujah you. But if if no one will clean up after the fellowship time or if they do it like bitterly, right. <laughs> um, then what you know is we're not we don't really get it like it is in maybe in our heads, but it hasn't sunk down into our hearts. And if we're not all really fighting for the chance to serve one another because love serves, then we don't, we don't understand that. In one of our recent board meetings, uh, somehow the conversation uh, turned to Bible study and 
uh, some elders started saying, hey, we need more Bible study. We need more people at Bible study. Bible study, Bible study needs to be a thing. And listen, I love studying the scriptures, not knocking that at all. But we started to go down a rabbit hole, and I asked this question. Hey, gang, what if, what if we simply started to put into practice what we already know? Mm-hmm. Like that in itself is powerful. Well, and there is a way that sometimes we come to scripture because we're really seeking to re-anchor ourselves and reorient ourselves in our walk. And sometimes we study the Bible in order to avoid following Jesus. And it just is a real um, seeking out because there comes to a point, there comes a point and it comes, I think, fairly early where you can tell yourself the problem is you don't know enough or you're not being fed enough. And the reality is like, you have not stepped it out. Um, Yeah, these two women that I mentioned earlier, uh, Robin and Bev, they said to me, well, pastor, you put before us Matthew 25, when Jesus said, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. You put that in front of us. We heard it and we're simply responding to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I just think that is beautiful. And I just want to name that what, I think is hard for us is to to go a next level deeper and say, okay, we are absolutely fundamentally all day long called to serve and to welcome those who are unhoused and to, you know, be friends and have relationships, which is what I think is so beautiful about what's happening at Derrida is it's not just Oh, these are people that we see <laughs> when we do we that. Know like, their names. like we know wait, their these stories. are people who worship with you, right? Like, these are people who are authentically part of your community, which is uncomfortable and messy, right? Because what we tend to want to do, at least in Western churches, is you know, like we're the church, and then we go serve them, right? We go on a mission trip, or or we go down to urban ministry or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. serving is what we do through an institution, and then community is what we have among ourselves with people who are basically experiencing largely the same kind of life that we are. Yes. And so, when, as I think the Holy Spirit always does, like starts to challenge that and say, like, if this is the body of Christ, then. People are going to be drawn not only from all ethnic backgrounds, but from all economic backgrounds as well. And the reason we really resist that, I think, honestly, even more fervently than we resist um, ethnic, um, multi-ethnic, is like multi-economicalism <laughs> is even scarier to us, is because you can't sleep as easy in your bed when someone who worships next to you on the pew every week is about to be locked out of their house, right? Mm-hmm. So it just makes wealth and comfort so much more uncomfortable, which I mean, I hate and also I just know that that's that's good for us. I mean, talk about turning to the scripture, like the scripture will tell you like, yeah. Um and so I think, you know, the other part of that story is just to say I think that we have largely bought into the dominant message of the culture. Um and sort of misappropriated one famous biblical verse to say like, well, there's always going to be unhoused people. And so what Jesus wants us to do is make sure they can shower, right? Or there's always going to be, you know, not enough places to live in our communities. And so what Jesus wants us to do is contribute to Habitat and build one house a year, right? Instead of doing the next level work of saying like, why do I have a house? Mm-hmm. 
and this person who is next to me on the pew doesn't? And why doesn't it bother me more? Like, why do I accept it as inevitable? And why am I not taking literally um, the prophecy in Jeremiah about, you know, everyone will have their own vine (laughs) and vineyard and, you know, rest under the shade of their own fig tree, right? This, why am I not taking literally the prophecies of shalom and mutual flourishing and interdependent well-being and really saying, I want all day long to meet the hygiene needs of people who are experiencing homelessness. And I want to continually um, be given holy discomfort with this dominant narrative of the culture, which is just like, oh, there's always going to be some homelessness. There's nothing you can do about it. Just make sure that people have shelters they can go in. And when it gets really cold, take them in one night a week in your church, right? And I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm just saying we can't let the experts, whether they're social work experts or political experts tell us what reality is when we say, no, for us, the ultimate reality is Jesus and we find his word in scripture. And so these things are not the way that things have to be or should be. And I guess this is all just winding around for me to my thing that's astonishing me, which I haven't talked yet about on the podcast, which is just the whole saga that we've been going through at the Grove um, with we have had um, a, f- a family living in our church for nine years. Now, I want to be clear, this family was not homeless when we invited them to move in to our church building. But they were missionaries. They're missionaries. And giving them a place to live for free meant that they were then able to give time to the church to support our ministries of outreach in the neighborhood. Um, and it just, I mean, it was just a wonderful, mutually beneficial relationship. This family served at the Grove and also, um, the, the, one of the adults with a father actually serves as one of the main leaders of, um, the Charlotte 24 seven prayer room. So, I mean, it was just a really generative relationship because when you give someone an affordable place to live, all of a sudden, so much of their time, and just mental and spiritual energy can be devoted to something else other than how am I going to make make it this month? How am I going to? And so anyway, it, it was a, I mean, it was a really transformative moment for us in our journey of um, revitalization at the Grove when we took what we had in abundance of, which was a big empty building, and we were able to um, trade it for what we needed, which was partners in our ministry. And it has been such a good thing that we've, I mean, I've long wanted to sort of say to other churches, Hey, if you are saying, I, you know, I wish we had a youth worker. I wish we had a person who could help us with visitation. I wish that we had a person who could launch a ministry to folks experiencing homelessness, or frankly, there are some folks experiencing homelessness in our neighborhood. I wish we could just turn a corner of our building into a stable and safe place for them to live, maybe in exchange for, you know, doing ministry, whatever that's conceived, helping out around the building, whatever it is, like we have empty space and we have a crisis of people having nowhere to go in our city, many of whom are actually working and are working jobs 
yes. that are essential that we yes. all learned through the pandemic. I mean, we shouldn't have needed a pandemic, we but have a postal worker that comes. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Like we and people at talk about the problem of affordable housing in our city as if there are just a lot of people sitting around on street corners all day with their hands out saying, you owe me a place to live. And what we do not understand or woefully and willfully refuse to see is that my style of living is dependent upon the people who work at Walmart, the people who work in early childhood education, the people who work cleaning up blood and vomit and other stuff in hospitals. I'm trying not to cuss, although if anything in the world deserves to be cussed over, right? Like we act like, oh, people shouldn't get a handout when the reality is we are demanding work from these folks. Our whole community will not function without their low paid and unpaid labor. And yet we have just decided that these people aren't worthy of living in shelter and dignity. And so, and, and, and to be fair, like the churches have been part of this, even in our participation in charities and institutions, we haven't questioned the dominant narrative of some people deserve to be housed and they're so worthy that they give back to the undeserving. Right. And so we've had this family living in our church for nine years and then, and in completely legally, by the way, because our city building codes allow churches to let folks live dormitory style living on their campuses if they're serving the church. And then the fire inspector came through in June of 2022 of last year. And even though they've inspected our building multiple times since the families lived there, said, this is in violation, you're in violation of city codes and failed us. And then when we showed that we weren't in violation of city codes, he reported us to the county because there's a city building code and a county building code. And they are not the same, but a building in the city has to be in compliance with both of them. And they're contradictory. And the county said, well, you aren't in compliance. You can't have dormitory living, but you can have a residential space. And we will work with you to transform one of the spaces within your building into a two-code residential space, which we were willing to do. And then the fire inspector at the end of November said, yeah, they have to be out by January 1st or we'll disconnect you from the power grid. So I mean, we just didn't have any choice at that point and, and been working through the system so much. I mean, that's one reason I never talked about it on the podcast because you're just going to these groups of people and trying to say like, hey, I know we all we want the same things. I know that no one is a monster here. I know like there's got to be a way that we can make this work And because all we're asking for is for the church to be able to use its own property to accomplish its own ministry. And in all of these meetings, you know, everyone was was really kind. And the folks in the city and the county were just really genuinely trying to help us. But the but the perspective of the folks in the fire inspection department was um, honestly like there was just a lot of anger directed towards us. Like we were being like we should be ashamed that we were trying to get away from some with something and that we were being um, bad citizens because we were putting the lives of first responders at risk because and and it it was said to me more than once, if there's a fire in your building, then a first responder is going to have to go inside and rescue that family. And that's not fair to the first responder. And, you know, I think obviously it's, I do not want to put first responders at risk. 
Um, but I think this idea, and it was said to me more than once that like, hey, it might be a one in a billion risk, but that is too much risk to allow the fire department to assume. And again, this is where I just really want to say, can we just think systemically and question this narrative that you've got people living in cars, living in storage units, living in tents, in in hidden and like taking on so much risk, the most vulnerable people in our community. And we just say like, look, you just got to do what you got to do. You got to figure out a way to live without plumbing, without safety. And you got to get up every day and look presentable and go to work because we're counting on you. But, but, you know, screw you if you haven't figured out a way to save enough money for a house in this market. And, and too bad, you know, if you don't have reliable transportation, so you can't move two hours away and just commute two hours every day. And so, you know, that that's an acceptable amount of risk. We don't care. And, and when people try to do things like keep their families together and so find a way to live in a car, even though they don't have a, a safe place, you know, a stable place to live. I mean, we will, we will take their children from them and put their children into foster care. We will, if, if we believe that their children are put at risk, we'll, we'll arrest parents and charge them with child abuse because I mean, so it's just crazy. And we, and we will, as a city often in, in a sign of genuine compassion, house people in extended stay motels and hotels, like the ones around the street from your church, when people are living in dormitory style living, not meeting any of the codes that the departments will require us to meet as a church. And we'll say, that's fine. Why? Because that's a for-profit building because we're used to seeing people sleep in those places. But when we talk about converting a space in a, a cinder block building, and we, we're saying like, no, that that's an unacceptable level of risk. Um, and, I, and I just think, you know, it's really interesting when, when they evicted the family and the fire department came out and stood in our parking lot and watched, watched, not the fire department. I'm going to get my terminology correctly. The fire inspectors. Um, stood in the parking lot and watched them move out. And and I had told them like we we weren't it was right it was, you know, New Year's Day. So we were having trouble getting movers lined up. And I called them to say the family is moving out. Like we're complying. Please don't turn off our electricity. But we can't get all their stuff moved out by that day. And they said to me, you cannot allow their stuff to stay in your building, right? Like they were like just really clear about like this is the line and we will enforce it and you answer to us and this is the way it is. And and when they were standing in the parking lot and watching, they were talking not to the family, but to one of our elders who had come to help. And they were just saying to him, like, you just don't understand. We have to do this because we just find people sleeping places all the time. You'll, you won't believe where we find people sleeping in laundromats, in their offices, in, you know, and, and they were saying it as if like, so you got to be on our side because we can't just have people sleeping in all these places where people shouldn't be sleeping as if people are deciding to sleep in a laundromat because they just want to get away with something, right? Like what we have is a huge crisis and what we're doing is demonizing the people who are suffering from the crisis in, instead of empowering people to get involved and making solutions. And so, you know, I think this is like, we have this idea as a church that like, well, we can participate in established charities but we can't do something like saying, well, you don't have a place to live. We have a big empty building that's empty most of the time. Why don't you just come and live in our church, right? Like we, But we are trained to not even see that as an option when the reality is if we really believe that the church is the house of God, then of course that's what Jesus would want us to do. And 
you know, so we're, you know, I'm trying to figure out now, I mean, the family has had to move out and now we're back to having a big empty building most of the time. And it's really sad. And I, you know, have been just seeking the Lord for what, you know, what, what does faithfulness look like now? And, and what I think is, you know, we just, we lost this battle, I think, so that we have a, um, so that we can fight a, I mean, I don't want to use the word war, but a, a war to say like, no, we want the right to house people. And, and if what you're saying is you can't house people unless you raise $300,000 to wholly renovate your space, like that's not reasonable given the, ri- the given the size and the magnitude of the crisis right now. And, um, you know, what's interesting now is, you know, I, I was really quiet about it all along because I w- was worried that if we, you know, made someone in authority feel embarrassed or, you know, defensive, that then they would, um, you know, there would just be, it would be even worse. Like then we couldn't work with them for a solution, but now we have nothing to lose anymore. Right. Because they've just, you know, they exerted their power among us. And so now I'm like, all right, well then I'm going to tell the story. I'm going to tell the story everywhere because this is what happened. The fire department came in. There was a family who had been living safety in our building for nine years. And the fire department said, get out now. We don't care. Or, and, and, now that we're telling the story and like I wrote an editorial in the paper and I went to city hall and not city hall, sit to a city council meeting. And, um, just, I'm trying to say like, I just think that churches and houses of faith should have the right to let people live in them while this housing crisis is going on. I was in a meeting this morning that they were saying like, we need a minimum of 350,000 units in order to have what we need in Charlotte, right? Like in order for the people who make our community work right now, in order for all of the people that we depend on every day, the clerks who stock the grocery stores, right? I mean, like people are doing jobs that we need. If all the people, see, and I think that people think, well, if there's somebody in this community who can't afford a house, I wish they would go away, right? Like there are people who think anybody who can't afford a house is a drain on our community and our community would be better off without them in it. But I mean, it's like that documentary, A Day Without a Mexican, right? Like if all the people in our community who cannot afford a place to live, if they all disappear tomorrow, nothing would work. Like we, our deliveries would go undelivered. Like the, you go to the doctor and you take a blood test and you're counting on that test to get to the lab. And you know, the person who's driving the, I mean, probably that person, there's a good chance that that person cannot afford a place to live, that they are like renting someplace about to be priced out of someplace are dependent on you know, I've got to have another, you know, person, like I'm going through a divorce. So now I don't have my spouse's money. So now I can't, I mean, like we don't pay people living wages. We think that only some people deserve to make enough money to live. And so I I think, um, we just need to be more, have more, I think, righteous urgency about not accepting as inevitable the way things are and to understand that people and institutions that are benefiting from the current inequities, one of their most powerful tools is to convince all of us that 
this is just the way it has to be or the best way that it can be. And we have to be people who say, but what if not? And like, here's a very obvious solution. No church has to let someone live in it, but churches should be able to. And it's really interesting. There's a, um, just a really beloved member of our community who actually listens to the podcast. And um, we were talking about the family who had been moved out. And she said to me, Kate, when I first heard that a family was going to move into our church, I just, I didn't agree with it. I just thought it was wrong. People shouldn't live in churches. I just thought it was just wrong, wrong, wrong. And she said, and then after all these years, I just am so sad they don't live in our church anymore. I just can't imagine. I can't even remember a time when they didn't. It just breaks my heart to come to this church and see this big old empty building. And it's just sort of interesting. Like we have this gut reaction to like, well, it shouldn't be that way. And sometimes there are really good solutions right in front of us and we can't see them. Or when we do see them, we go like, well, that can't be. Instead of asking the next question, genuinely asking the next question, but why not? Right. And you know, the, the fire, um, inspector was talking to me at one of those meetings and was saying like, they can't live there because if there's a fire in the middle of the night, you know, the fire department won't come, they won't know there's someone there. And so they, you know, they won't know where to find them. And I'm like, I mean, bless a, we talked to our local fire department we deliver them leftovers from our community meal every month. And also, if people can have little stickers on their doors that say, please rescue my pets, I feel like we could come up with, if, if really the problem is fire departments won't know if there's someone living in the building, then how about we let them know, right? Like, how about we're already, you know, what's a residence and what's a business. How about if you just layer on a third category of like, this is a multi-use facility. This is where these, like, it's not that hard. We have the technology. We just don't have the will to do it because the fire department and the fire inspectors all along said, just buy a camper and let them live in your, your parking lot. We don't care about that. That's totally legal. I'm like, so you're telling this family that it's not safe enough for them to be in the building, but they can live in a camper in the parking lot. I mean, our neighborhood, not for nothing, but like there's a lot of gunfire in our neighborhood. Like there, we have all these huge trees that, um, you know, we lose limbs in storms all the time. Like it's, it, when it does get cold, I mean, imagine if you're in a heater, you in a camper, you've got some sort of like propane heater or whatever, like the risk to a, the actual family is a lot higher in a camper in the parking lot. The Security, building. they're much safer in the building, but you're saying like essentially flat out saying, I don't care what makes the citizens safer. I only care about the institutional risk to my organization. And again, it's not that I, I know I really have a tremendous amount of honor and respect for firefighters. My father-in-law was a fireman and retired as a fire chief. But one thing I know about firefighters is they get into it because they want to rescue people. The firefighters are not asking people to live in campers so that they can just let buildings burn down, right? Now, I agree there's a practical problem that needs to be solved. I agree I would not want first responders wandering through our whole building looking for a family, but I also know we talked about we'll move them to the first floor where there's a door 
like two doors so they can walk straight out to the outside or through the building in the other way. We, I mean, like there are ways to solve the problem of how can we get the information to the first responders that there's people living in the building. That is a solvable problem. And I just think this idea of like, well, we've never done it this way before, so we shouldn't have to do it this way now. Maybe not, but we've never had an affordable housing crisis at the level that we have right now. So the idea of like, well, let's just keep building, I mean, bless you, Jimmy Carter, but let's keep building 20 Habitat houses a year. I am grateful for that, but we can't keep doing what we're doing and just wait I don't know, a million years until we have enough. Like that's not a, that's not a reasonable solution. So all of that is what's astonishing me this week. I'm done. Two responses. Number one, um, when it comes to the housing crisis, I'm reminded how close many of us are to being homeless. Absolutely. Like one tragedy away. Um, we met a family last week. Their house burned, and then there was a serious illness in the family. Those two things were a one-two punch, and now they are without a place to live. Yep. They are in their car. I mean, when you have a healthcare system tied to employment, then here's the pretty obvious flaw with that system when you're the person with the job who has the insurance and then you get a serious diagnosis yes. can you cobra yes but the problem is if you have to leave your job because you have terminal cancer then you can't afford your treatment plan i mean it just it, it it does it only we're our system only works for healthy people and our current system only works for wealthy people. My second response to everything you've said, uh, this idea of institutional risk, it is astonishing to me that your church is willing to take that risk because I, I think one reason we don't see more of a movement in terms of more churches. Uh, or, or churches in general being allowed to house people is that um, I just don't think there are a lot of churches willing to take that risk. And like you said, it's because it, we just don't think about it. It's not something that we think is normal. We forget about the history of, of monasteries, right? right? That, that's where they lived. That's where they worked. That's where um, they worshiped, right? Mm -hmm. They're at the monastery. So it's not unheard of for believers to live on the grounds of their place of worship. Right. And I think that people just assume like, oh, people who are homeless are people who have just been released from prison or people who have active addictions and don't want treatment. And what they don't recognize is what you said, like this person who's homeless is currently employed as a postal worker. This person, this family who is homeless had a home six months ago but there was a fire and a diagnosis. Like we think, oh, the people who are experiencing homelessness are are so unlike us that it would be a big risk and a detriment to have them as our neighbors or to have them living in our church. Instead of recognizing that like, no, the, the people who are experiencing homelessness are a huge asset to our communities and would be a huge asset to our faith communities. And we don't recognize it. And like, is every person experiencing homelessness in that category? No, but is 
every person who's in your community currently housed? Is every person who's housed like a fully stable, functioning, risk-free person? No. I mean, the reality is I don't think that it would be a good system to walk down the street and just say to the first person you saw, hey, come live in our church. But I do think, again, we're not only talking about people who are currently experiencing homelessness. We're also just talking about creating a unit of affordable housing that would maybe create an economic model that would allow your church to have a youth ministry, that would allow your church to have an addiction recovery ministry, right? I mean, like, I think of what your community of faith could do if you could hire someone and give them a safe and stable, dignified place to live and a stipend, right? All of a sudden, the ministry possibilities that are opened up by that are are really huge, much less knowing that, hey, we have a place that if someone in our community lost a job or had a health tragedy, we could say, hey, come and live in our space for a while and live in your space, live in the Lord's house for a while. And would it be risky? Yes, it would. But I just feel like so many times we are trying to I mean, we talked about this in the transformation process, like our mindset is just, what can we do that won't cause any problems? Instead of saying like, hey, this could cause a problem, but you know what? The Lord will supply us in that problem, and this is a righteous problem to have. I mean, what what is more righteous to say, well, we can't consider putting housing in our church because it might go wrong, and we didn't want to take the risk, Lord, and we knew you were a harsh master, and so if we did something to mess up your church, right. I was afraid of what you might do with us, right? Or to say, Lord, we, we really tried to leverage this building to be about the values of your kingdom, and so we invited someone to come in, and then actually it didn't work out, and we didn't know what to do. I mean, I just feel like the Lord will meet us in that problem and we will learn some things in that problem. And there, I don't think there's any shame in trying sincerely and soberly to do something for the sake of righteousness that involves risk and failing. Last Thursday night, we had a, we hosted at uh, Derrida Church a, a community meeting. We had some folks from the city of Charlotte come to give a report about uh, development in our part of the city. And one of the things that comes up often in those meetings um, are several hotels that we have down the street from us on Mm -hmm. um, the interchange there, the interstate. And they are filled with families who cannot afford a permanent place to live. Um, They have a lot of issues in terms of crime and drugs, and for many years, uh, people have wanted to get rid of those hotels. And I don't often feel for city leaders, but during this meeting I did, because the citizens of our neighborhood are really angry that those hotels aren't gone. Just get rid of them. Find a way to demolish them and just put something else in their place. Right, and just take the people living them, just take them out back yeah. and shoot them, right? Because and, who cares? Yeah, the get them out of here. the city were, were saying to us... That's sarcasm. I feel we, like I need... <laughs> it's, all, it's all good. ...to state that. <laughs> the, the folks in the city were saying, well, what we want, what we would like to do is to find a place for them to go. We don't want to just shoo them over to another part of the city and create the same issue someplace else. Like we want a real viable 
solution, both for those folks who own the hotels, folks who are living in them, and for the businesses around them, right? And it it is fairly complicated. I believe that they are sincerely working on it, but I left that meeting thinking, okay, this is this 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 has some complexity to it. And and there are a lot of churches in our neighborhood, not only with sizable buildings, but with a fair amount of land, mm-hmm. just land. Uh, one church, uh, I believe it's Mayfield Baptist Church, same road, they took some land that is um, uh, uh, next to their parking lot, I believe, and they are partnering with the city to create some affordable housing. Um, some folks at Dorida Church and I have talked about, well, what if we created, what, what if we partnered with someone to create a, a tiny house community? Well, mm-hmm. we, we need to do something. Um, but I, I recognize that it, it's complex and at the same time, there's a role for the church. Well, and I, I mean. That requires yeah. risk. I guess I think on the one hand, yes, it's complex. In the sense that if what you want as a neighbor is just to get rid of those people, then the city is saying like, okay, it solves your problem, but it, you know, creates the same problem for other neighbors who are housed, not to mention does nothing for the people who currently, by the way, I mean, to the, when there are people who are living, like paying their own way in those extended stay hotels, they're very expensive. Like I guarantee you that if you live in a home with a mortgage, you pay less per night to stay in your home than people. The deposits, the first month. You just can't. No one will give them a mortgage. A, no one will give them a mortgage, which I'm not Mm -hmm. even saying, I mean, I understand, or I don't really, but the credit default swap or whatever, I understand that there's, there's a need for being thoughtful about how mortgages work. But I'm just saying like we've set up this whole thing so that people can't get into the housing market, even if they could. I mean, most people pay in rent more than they would pay. I'm certainly in my mortgage. So I think that, you know, that's the problem. It's like, it's the, it, I mean, not to sound like Bernie Sanders, but like the system is rigged. And so on the one hand, it's a complicated system to maintain. And on the other hand, the solution actually is pretty simple they need a place to live. Right. And so I think there's this real tension of like, I think the simple solution of just put them on another side of town, that's not a simple solution, but this problem is not going to be solved until the people who have to be in this community because that's where their jobs are, (laughs) get a place to live. Like that's gonna, it, it really is on some level that, that simple. And, um, I think, you know, this is just the real, challenge is that people don't understand like oh you're living in this terrible these terrible um extended stay motels that are filled with like black mold and are yep. not safe and like they're they're just awful places to live but the alternative is worse well but i'm also just saying people think like oh well it must be cheap and i want to say no it's not it's like what 300 or 400 dollars a week like 400 dollars a week is in a, a motel like that is more than we pay in our mortgage. So that's what I think people need to understand is it's not that people don't have any money at all. And and I don't think that people understand that. I think, again, we just otherize people experiencing homelessness so much that we don't know who those people are. We just know who we see. So you know the person that you see standing 
on a street corner with a cardboard sign trying to get money, but you don't know the person who's in the kitchen while you're eating in the restaurant. And people don't want to tell you that they're experiencing homelessness because they know what you think of people who are experiencing homelessness. So they don't want that stigma. They don't want that shame. And so it's just, um, it just, the bottom line is, as people who follow Jesus, who, by the way, was homeless, we ought to have a different understanding of the sacred humanity of people who are in that situation and then be able to, you know, do what Jesus said, which is do for other people what you would want done for you. Like if I didn't have a safe and stable place to live with my kids, I'd want one. Yeah. And and so would I want a place to shower and wash my clothes? I mean, yes, but that wouldn't feel like enough for me. I would feel like I wanted a place where I could come in at night and lock the door and know that I was safe and know that as long as, you know, I mean, whatever, we don't have any certainty in this world, but that if I was showing up every day and doing a job that mattered in the world, I could continue to live in this place. And so um, I just feel like the very least that we can do as followers of Jesus is question this huge assumption that we're all walking around in that it has to be this way that which you know people go well Jesus said the poor you will always have with you but Jesus was not saying so just let them eat cake right like that's not Jesus said you know sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me so that's more where where we should be and and I think okay and this really will be the last thing I say like to be a city official is a hard thing to be a leader in any way is a hard thing and obviously people are used to the way it is and so there is pressure when people try to make any changes and it can feel like there's less pressure if you just let things stay the same and I think our job is to say yes there will be pressure if we try to change things but we need to be the people who are lovingly and honorably we're putting pressure on it staying the same, right? So that people can't just say like, well, there's resistance on one side and no resistance on the other to say like, no, there's resistance on both sides. And so we're going to have to do the thing that we think is actually right. And I was in a meeting before we ran this morning. Oh, look, see, it wasn't the last thing after all. And they were talking about, you know, a huge part of the housing disparity comes because after World War II, you know, the GI Bill, the GI Bill is what made a difference and allowed a ton of people to get housing, which yes. changed the trajectory generationally for so many families. And of course, the great tragedy of the GI Bill was that black people who were veterans were systematically disenfranchised from it. Like white veterans got these home loans and got college and black veterans didn't. And the person who was leading that, that meeting this morning and talking about it was just said, like, can we just pause for a minute and imagine imagine where we would be if black veterans who served their country had been given the same rights and benefits because the wealth gap that exists now would be gone. And, and at the time, the idea of equity clearly felt so threatening to so many people and, you know, everyone, but especially 
white people have inherited that whirlwind of now, I mean, it was, it, it was wrong all day long. And I'm not saying obviously the people who are most physically and materially affected by this injustice are black people and people of color, but white people who thought somehow having this advantage was going to ha- keep us safe and pretty and whatever, like, no, this has, this has come back. This evil has come back on us as well in that a society that's this divided can't, can't coexist. Like people, people don't want to contribute indefinitely to the welfare of a society that is not accessible to them. And, and why should, and why should they? So I I think, you know, just, but I mean, it just makes me sort of gasp and cry and think how, what a beautiful place we would be living in right now. If people of faith with a vision of Jesus had said what was obviously and patently true, which is this is not right. This is not just, this is not righteous. We cannot allow this to be. I mean, where would we be? I'm thinking of Jesus' words in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the children of God. And then right after that, he went to blessed are the persecuted. Right. Um, and so to do this work means to um, stir up things uh, in a way that will not allow um, us to be okay with things the way they are. Right. And I think that's because peacemakers are troublemakers, right? Mm-hmm. Because peacemakers are those who say, hey, you might be okay with the system as the as it is, but I, your life is not really peaceful if it is contingent upon the misery and suffering of other people. And so we have to say the system only works to the extent that it works for the most vulnerable and weak people in it. And so we are going to disturb the false peace in order to create true shalom. And so that means you're going to get persecuted because the people who think that their unjust advantages are actually advantageous are going to be really mad that they will be, quote, losing them. When in really what we're doing is restoring everyone to their full humanity. Which is where we are in our society with the culture wars. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So should we talk about what's astonishing us this week? <laughs> no, we just did that, sort of. We, we've, no, we're no, thinking I, about I'm, things. I'm sorry, thinking about. That's what yes. I meant, thinking about. Yes. Well, um, so you sent me an article um, about uh, the Tennessee state legislature that passed the nation's first laws against... Um, um, drag shows. Drag shows, that's it. And it reminded me... Um, 15, 16 years ago, when I lived in Nashville, I was buying a new pair of running shoes. And um, I was in the Nike store in the mall, and they did not have the particular shoe that I wanted. And so I went over to the women's section, Mm -hmm. and they had the shoe, and they had it in my size. So I bought the women's shoe, and it and it it was a bright yellow, they were yellow and gray, and they were fantastic shoes right and people asked me all the time where i've never seen those where did you get those shoes well got them at the nike store whisper in the women's section according to this new law that has passed i'm i'm i might i might be guilty of violating um this law against 
men dressing like women or wearing women's clothes. I don't know, but it's just the strangest law ever. Yeah, I mean, I what not I not ever, yeah, but it, it is I strange. Mean, no, le- and it's yeah. it is a continuation of the culture wars, a sense that there, there's there's a, a group of people, primarily um, middle class white Americans who feel like they are losing their grip on the country and who are seeking to take the country back, mm-hmm. back. You don't have to air quote that. I mean, <laughs> I think it's actually true. <laughs> like white middle-class Americans have had at least the illusion of having all the power in this country for a long time. And so right now that illusion is being stripped away from them and they want it back, right? They want, I think I, I I'm, I'm, Doing air quotes uh, for those who can't uh, see us. Which is uh, everyone but me. Everyone, yeah, that's right. (laughs) Um, It's back to some time when America was perfectly good, perfectly what, like, there were no problems. There there was this time when when we had it right, and now we're trying to get back to that place. Well, I mean, and obviously we know and believe that that time is, it, I mean, never existed, right? Like I know people who, who I respect, who would say, Hey, you people who are older than I am, who would say, you know, in the fifties and in the sixties, um, you know, it really, I, I really did, um, experience the world as safer and people were more respectful. And so I long for that experience and, I would say that was your experience and I honor that that was your experience. And I think that the love of Christ compels us also to widen our gaze and to say, if you say we're um, a a white woman in the fifties, you might have experienced a lot of honor and respect in the culture. But if you were a black woman in the fifties, you surely did not. If you were a black man in the fifties, you surely did not. And so to say we can long for a time when all God's children are live in communities where they are given the benefit of the doubt, where they are treated respectfully by law enforcement officers who do exist to protect and serve them and will risk their lives to protect yours. Like we can long for that day and there's nothing wrong with longing for that day, but there is something wrong with believing the lie that we had that day once and it slipped away from us, particularly in believing the lie that everyone experienced the world in a kinder and gentler way. And it was just when we allowed people to um, receive fundamental human rights that we somehow lost, um, you know, dignity in our culture and freedom. And like that, that is not true. Um, So I, I think, um, I mean, that, that law in Tennessee is really um, interesting. Targeting a community. It is. Well, I mean, I just think it's interesting in, in two ways because I mean, so obviously the law says that there cannot be any, that drag shows are illegal and that people can be arrested. And the law, according to lawyers is, is very vaguely worded. And it says anywhere that a minor might be corrupted, that that's, and, and so, but what is, 
what is the question is what you're saying is what constitutes a drag show? And what's really interesting to me is we often, are, I mean, are, are looking at what is happening um, in the Middle East and particularly in Afghanistan and just decrying what's happening to women there, that they're being excluded from schools, that they're being told that they have to, you know, wear a full hijab and be completely covered in public that, you know, we have the, um, you know, protests happening in Iran right now about the hijab where, you know, uh, the young woman was brutally tortured and murdered because she was not wearing her, her, her um, hijab in the correct way. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't deemed acceptable by the morality police. And I mean, that is essentially saying women have to dress one way in public to be decent and men have to dress another way in public to be decent. And there's a certain set of people who get to decide what counts as appropriate women's clothing and what doesn't. And you can look at the laws, the Taliban laws requiring full hijab and full burqa in Afghanistan. And you can look at Tennessee's law and uh, outlawing drag shows where minors can be corrupted. And you just say like, look, those are different manifestations of the same thought, which is that there are authorities who get to decide what is an acceptable expression of humanity for women and what is an exception, acceptable expression of humanity for men. And you have to you have to perform your gender to the satisfaction of those authorities or else you are a corruption in society and you deserve imprisonment or death. And you can say like, well, that's hysterical and it's not the same thing. I mean, the principle is exactly the same thing. And the question of like, who gets to decide? So right now people are saying like, well, men who wear wigs and makeup and dance in ball gowns, like that's an unacceptable expression of masculinity. And again, this is different than being transgendered, right? Like that's a whole different conversation to be having. But I think, you know, the question is then like, well, where is the line? Like, does it include men at the Scottish festival wearing a kilt? Right. And does it include taking your kid or Halloween costumes or you're watching a movie, you're watching, um, the Dustin Hoffman movie, Tootsie, oh, Tootsie, right? Right. Or you can you allow your son to play and paint his nails? And if so, why not? And like to your point, I mean, it's really interesting that for something like shoes, we feel compelled to have a men's section and a women's section when like feet are feet. And some women have wide feet and some women have narrow feet and some men have wide feet and some men have narrow feet. And this idea that we need to have this gender hierarchy preserved in order for men to be their authentic selves and women to be their authentic selves, like that's, I mean, that's just imposed upon us, particularly as people who follow Jesus, when one of the clear teachings of the early church is that in Christ, there is no longer Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female. And what that means is that we, in Christ, we recover our full humanity and the freedom to express it in any way that glorifies Christ. And as someone who performs femininity in a way that many people still believe is inappropriate, right? Like to be a woman pastor is, is just not something, um, 
that's okay. I mean, many people do believe that it is an abomination before the Lord. So first you say, well, men can't wear dresses. And then you say, well, women must wear dresses. And then you say, I mean, like, it's just this idea who gets to determine how an individual shows up in the world? Is it that individual or is it certain people who deem themselves authorities in society? Like, I think people get to pick their own clothes. So speaking of the Bible, uh, one of the uh, places people go to uh, to support this law is Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5, which says, The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are an abomination to the Lord thy God. And so people read that and they say, well, there, that's it. That settles it. It says right here in the text. And this is one of those places where uh, it's important for us not to have that kind of mentality that oversimplifies the Bible by saying, well, God says it, I believe it, that's that's all, that settles it, right? Because mm-hmm. there is work to do. Uh, there is, um, you know, I've, I've been taught that there are three parts to understanding the Bible. There is uh, what it says, the actual words, mm-hmm. what it means, and you have to do some digging in terms of history, and then how it applies. And you need to get all three of those right, what it says, what it means, and how it applies. And when it comes to this text, it seems that what was happening is that Israel was establishing a law against men and women dressing like each other because in the ancient world, when it came to pagan gods and goddesses, there was that kind of cross-dressing, and Israel was trying to say, no, we're not going to do that, just to distinguish our worship from theirs. It really wasn't about the clothes. It was about the cultural connection to pagan worship. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I also just think, look, I, I love the Bible, and it is one of the primary ways that I experience communion with God. Like I, I, I just, I mean, it's just my experience that I recover my awe and wonder and it expands my understanding of the goodness of God beyond like some people see God in nature. And I just, I mean, that's not my primary way. I, I really do see and know the Lord and meet the Lord in scripture. And, you know, I, I do not worship the Bible and it is not God. And I deeply struggle with a, a lot in scripture and I'm not throwing stuff away, but I'm also just not going to sit here and say every word of scripture is equally um, formative for me as a Christian. Like I interpret scripture through the person of Jesus. And there's a lot of places of scripture and verses in scripture and incidents in scripture that I'm like, I don't. I don't understand and I don't recognize God in the scripture. And just recently we were doing a sermon series on Sabbath. And so I was just doing a deep dive in a lot of um, Sabbath um, teaching in Jesus's teaching in the New Testament. And then also, you know, sort of the, uh, the Deuteronomy, Deuteronomic teaching and the Mosaic covenant teaching on Sabbath. And there's an incident some, at somewhere, I think it's in, I think it's in numbers um, where, <laughs> There are some men who are doing some kind of work on the Sabbath and God tells Moses and the people to take them outside the camp and stone them to death. And I just, 
I mean, look, I just give the text honor by taking it seriously, right? So I don't, I can't explain that away. But there's a difference between a descriptive text and, and a, a per- prescriptive no, sure, text, sure, right? Absolutely. So that text does not prescribe for the church. If anyone is breaking the Sabbath in your church, you take them outside and stone them, right? No, it, no, of course it doesn't. But I'm just saying like every but, but single one of us. people approach sure. the text. But even, every word prescribes. Correct. And, and what that tells me, if people are doing that, like if people are taking that verse from Deuteronomy and saying like, that's it, like that verse is determinative of how people need to perform gender in society and, you know, not willing to do the, the larger work of like, well, what constitutes a man's garment and a women's garment in 2022 and who says so, right? But like, put all that aside, like you're just, say we just assume that whatever... Susie Q public believes is proper women's clothing and proper men's clothing. Like that's what it is. And that's what that Bible verse means. And that's where, that's how we're going with it. And still say, look, you, someone said the other day, you know, you can take one verse out of scripture and you can find one verse in scripture to support literally any action, any law, any viewpoint that a human being could possibly conceive of. So that that's my my only point is like I you you could absolutely say, well, the, also in Deuteronomy, they found those dudes working on the Sabbath and God said to take them outside the camp and kill them. So that says that's the law and we need to go with it. Let's well, kill people was, who work on the Sabbath. Uh, there was um, a legislator in Tennessee who said, well, let's bring back um, firing squads and, and hanging hanging, right? hanging from a tree, he right. said. Like lynching. Right. And so I just think like the reality is you and I and and people who read scripture differently than we do, all of us could grab one verse out of scripture Mm -hmm. and say, this is my proof of my justification to do what seems right in my eyes. And and the question is, like, I don't get to throw out that verse from Deuteronomy, but they don't get to throw out Paul's teaching in Colossians about there is no more male or female in the body of Christ. Like there's just a whole troubling and glorifying, astonishing, holy um, community of texts that are all speaking to us and to one another. And they're all manifestations of, of God, but they are not God. And we also have to interpret them through um through the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And that is just a very vulnerable and open-ended and messy um, process. But I just am saying, if you're horrified by what is being done to women in Pakistan and women in Afghanistan, but you're cheering what is being done in Tennessee to drag queens, like you need to understand that you're on the side of the people that you think are doing wrong and you can say it's a matter of degrees and obviously it matters like I can appreciate that they're not saying that people who perform in drag shows need to be taken out back and shot but it's the same truth it's the same ideology that you're buying into which says you get to determine someone else's bodily autonomy and I think that that is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think it all day long. And I just think at the end of the day, and this is, you know, one of the great gifts of 
the transgender community. And again, we're not talking about that right now, but, and the drag queen community to me is it just makes me recognize how binary my mind is when it comes to humans that I just want to sort them into categories of male and female and that I really do see and experience and connect with them differently depending upon which of those categories I see them as being in and on a sort of gut like deep psychological level I, I can just acknowledge that there's parts of me that feel threatened and uncomfortable with men dressing up like women. Like I, I can, I can acknowledge that in my unconscious, but what I also want to say is, okay, but also why, like, why do I feel like I need to approve of the way other people show up and walk around in the world? Like, why do I feel like that's something that ought to seem reasonable in my eyes? And is that healthy for me? And how can I tell myself that I follow Jesus who ca- who tells us to love people unconditionally when I can't even accept and welcome and, and practice unconditional positive regard to someone who's wearing clothing that I think they shouldn't wear? Like, I'm just lying to myself. So I'm grateful for that the presence of folks in their in our community who challenge those gender roles because they expose to me how much healing and growing I need to do in order to really become the person that I think I already am. And I go like, well, I know I'm really not I'm really not there yet and I'm glad to have that knowledge because I really want to be a person who can love people and can welcome them in the mystery of who they are and so like if someone is abusing their partner, like I'm not okay with that. But if someone is wants to wear a dress to church, like why, what does that have to do with me? This reminds me of the season when our congregations were going through the transformation process, meeting with uh, consultants, um, helping us to move from being congregations that were in inward focused clubs mm-hmm. to um, outward focused missionaries. And that shift created a lot of anxiety mm-hmm. in, in the congregations. And that anxiety brought people to a fork in the road. Mm-hmm. One path said, this change is too much. I need to snap way back right. into old time church the way I've always known it. Let's go back to what it used to be. The other fork in the road was this is painful. <laughs> it is disorienting. Scary. It's scary, but let's lean into it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we see a similar thing when it comes to... Um, masculinity in this society Mm -hmm. with the rise of feminism and um, uh, these voices uh, um, uh, calling for the full equality of women in every area of our society. There are some men who reach a fork in the road because of the anxiety created by that crisis. Uh, No, we need to snap back into Father knows best. Men rule uh, over women. And then there are others who say, 
I, I feel the anxiety too, but let's let's lean into this. Let's 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 walk this out. I I think it's the same thing with um, um, uh, uh, the drag community. This creates some anxiety for us, for for all of us, and there is the the tension of of this this crossroad where these legislators are saying, nope, let's create a law to uh, make sure what we've known. And the way we think it ought to be is what is law. Right. And I, I mean, I just think you cannot outlaw an idea. So if you feel like men need to show up in a certain way in the world, then you need to cast vision for that. You need to show people how, you know, this bears good fruit. Like you, you, you but you can't just say it perform, you know, show up in the world in this way or else I'm going to put you in prison. I mean, you can do that, but it doesn't help you in turn, like it doesn't help you um, spread your cause. And I I just, um, I think that that it is just a really interesting moment. And I do think it is more about masculinity. It is more about men than it is about women because I do think that for all of the real um, discrimination that women have and continue to experience what what has long been available to women especially white women is this idea that you can you can show up in the world in very traditional quote feminine ways but you can also be a tomboy right you can also be a, a girl scientist like you can all like people will kind of cheer if you break those gender norms And the same is, and you don't get your, normally people will not question whether or not you're quote, still a woman, but that there's not that same, there's just such a narrow, narrow, narrow lane of ways that men can show up in the world without being told that they're sissies or incels or whatever. And so men learn that they just really have to shut down just huge parts of their emotional palette and that they're just certain behaviors and, um, and activities and roles that they just cannot, um, be a part of. And the thing is like men and women, both humans. And so if women need times where it's okay to be weak, where it's okay to depend on other people, where it's okay to be strong, where it's okay, you know, we, we need that. The fear is that if we lean into this movement, it will the 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 end result will be all men being asked to dress in drag and there will not be a diversity of you know some men show up in the world with muscles from the top of their head to the tip of, i mean they're just they're they're just big muscular guys i don't show up in the world like that there are men who show up in the world who can fix anything with some duct tape and a paper clip I'm not showing up in the world as a Mr. Fix-It. But there are other men who show up in the world um, with long hair and looking quote-unquote girly. I don't show up in the world like that either. What if we simply allowed for a diversity of ways for men to show up in the world? Well, and I think, you know, that that's the real key. And I, I think I've told you before, I had a um, spiritual director when I was in Boston who sort of mentored a group of us. He died a couple of years ago, Don Wick. And I mean, I was very young at the time, like 23, 24. And I, we used to have these like small, I mean, what I now would recognize were small group meetings in his apartment. And, um, we, uh, 
we, I can remember one time he talked to us about how he was experiencing a lot of flourishing in his life because he had tapped into his feminine side. And like, and I loved him so much and I experienced him as such a, just a wise and mature Christian. And I was learning so much from, I mean, I just, he was such a godsend in my life, but I remember sitting in that circle just being like, that's weird. I mean, internally, right? Like just thinking like, I just, I, I mean, it was, I wouldn't say it was threatening to me, but, that but it just the sense of like, norm, like and like you don't have a feminine side, like you're a man, you're right? And I mean, yeah. and I think just this, but I what I think he was saying is, look, like nurturing, vulnerability, um, I mean, there there are just certain and aspects not of being allowed to have that as part of your humanity, right? Is destructive. Is destructive. Not being able to show up in the world and feel your feelings is destructive. Correct. And I just think like we have taken parts of the human experience and said these are only belong to women and parts of the human experience and said these are only allowed to belong to men and then sent people out as half of themselves and said, go ahead and prosper or find one another and put a whole human back together again. Instead of saying like, no, the reality is there are times when you, you need, when all humans need to be strong and powerful. And there are times when people just need to learn how to be vulnerable and ask for help and depend on others. There are times when we all need to nurture and there's times when we all need to be nurtured. And we, and, and the trick is Ecclesiastes, like figuring out what those seasons are and trusting when they come. And, and that's not something that humans in general get to do. But I think women, weirdly enough, get more societal approval for being fully human than men do. And and that, I think, is really um, just greatly to the detriment of men. And, you know, you just see how it's crept into the church world so insidiously that we would have a small group and be like, well, there's men's small group and there's women's small groups because you can't talk to each other, right? Like if you're going to really be vulnerable and share, you got to be in different groups because men are from Mars and women are from Venus and you can't, and like, God forbid a man hear what it's like as a woman to walk into a place and be patronized, right? Like why, why, or God forbid that men sit in small groups with women and learn how hard it is to be working and then come home and feel like you're on the second shift. And not, I mean like yeah. one out of 10 domestic violence victims are men. We don't talk about that. Mm -hmm. And the men who experience it often do not talk about it because there's such stigma in it. So I just think like the fear, I don't, I don't think that the fear for people, I mean, maybe we're saying the same thing in different ways, but like, I don't think the fear is that people think they will be men think that they will be forced to dress in drag. But Not I do forced, think, I do think that yeah. people are afraid that like, Oh, everyone will become androgynous. Like yeah. there will be no yeah. difference between men and women anymore. And a, I just think that's kind of a hysterical fear. And by the way, just as an aside, um, I came of age in the 80s, and if you saw any of the hair bands, like, <laughs> those dudes had big hairspray and makeup. They Some of them were pretty, uh, yeah. and it was not an issue then. Sorry. Well, I mean, I, I yeah, I, I, am I, I, I've served a church in Charlotte where the men, what did they call it? I can't remember what they called it, but they did a mock wedding where the men, like half the men dressed up like women 
and like dressed up like a bride and bridesmaids and like mother of the bride. Like it was this whole, like, I can't remember if they called it like a, a hillbilly. Way. I can't remember what they called it, but I mean, it was the men. Like this I mean, was at a church. Yes. It was like church. the men's group. They did it as like a community thing. And I just remember sitting in the fellowship hall and just being like, I just don't, I just don't understand. Like I, well, so first of all, they would never do it now, right? Because it would be considered drag. And I mean, and it, and it was drag. Was. It was drag. But at the time, it also just felt like actually pretty threatening to me. Like it kind of felt like they were, because everything was exaggerated. So it was these really exaggerated versions of what people perceived as femininity. So I felt like it was a little, I mean, I, I don't know. It was, like it was pretty, mocking. I mean, it was mocking. And, and I think we were all like, because like, oh, look how ridiculous it is that men would dress like women and men would act like women. Like I wouldn't be so like petty and hysterical and emotional and whatever. But then we really have to wrestle with the biblical image as the church, as the bride of Christ, because that includes men. So we have to wrap our hearts and minds around this image that includes men as the bride of Christ. Yes. And there's, there's a whole nother topic that I would talk about with that, but I just think what it, what it exposes to me is like the church has done a, obviously a terrible job talking. The white church has done a terrible job talking about ethnicity and white supremacy. And I think the church in general has done a, just a terrible job at talking about gender and what is, what are healthy gender expressions and what does it mean um, just to not like, how can we be settled enough in our own holy humanity that we don't feel the need to try to control others or perform for others? Like there's just a deep place of brokenness. And I think like we were saying on the road run today, like it just goes back to like, 312 AD, right? Like it goes back to Constantine. It goes back to that moment when the early church went from being a vulnerable, powerless population of people who were radically, who were living together in risky and radical ways that, that really defied all social norms and hierarchies and expectations. And then became i'm so confused by you um he's giving me the timeout signal and i, I don't know, so, I have to pick up my child okay, so, so we're done <laughs> um yeah forget it we'll talk about constantine next week thank you so much for listening if you still are um check out i love how i say that every week it's so dumb it's so dumb i just get stuck in the patter if you want to know what God is doing at God's Church, Derrida Presbyterian Church, D-E-R-I-T-A, you can go to um, www.derridachurch at... John- <laughs> what? Oh, wait, what? I'm like, what church are start you talking over. about? Just start over. You- DerridaChurch.FaithLifeSites.com. And you can worship with them at 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings. You can check out their YouTube channel or go to the Podbeam uh, website and check out their podcast. And if you want to know what God is doing at God's Church The Grove, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can go to our podcast or our YouTube channel. And you can worship with us at 10 a.m. on Sunday, where the dress code is wear clothes of any gender. Just wear clothes. Just Just do not come naked, and we will welcome you. So thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next week.